Always build each other up. Be cheerful. Hold on to what is good. And thank God no matter what happens. God himself will put you together, spirit, soul, and body. If he said it, he'll do it. Kia ora, good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day to all the mums out there. And uh, I trust that um, your day's begun well. I was listening to the radio coming into church this morning, and the uh, radio host said that this is the day where mothers celebrate weak cups of tea and burnt toast. And I thought, yeah, they do, because uh, anything's, anything's worth celebrating, eh, when your kids serve you. Um, <clears throat> well, I've I got to say that um, I, I had a tough childhood. Um, my parents decided they would abuse me by making me make my bed, do the dishes, mow the lawns, and we worked on an orchard. We, my parents owned an orchard, so uh, weekends I had to pick up Fijoas, I had to pick oranges. Uh, then my dad looked at his two sons and said, we can do better than this, so he built this huge glass house and grew tomatoes, and we'd swelter in the heat during the summer, pruning them, picking the tomatoes, and my dad Mum had kiwi fruit. By the time I was 15 or 16, 17 years old, I had to organise all the picking gangs. That level of responsibility, I should have been six inches taller, but it weighed me down. <laughs> Just absolutely terrible. Even the things that I enjoyed were made hard. I, I, Dad wouldn't take me to the rugby game until I polished my boots every Saturday. I was the only guy with polished boots every Saturday. I felt like such a nerd. <laughs> Of course, that's stupid, isn't it? Because you jump in the mud within two minutes and they're dirty again. Anybody else have a bad childhood like that? <laughs> See? Hey, it's terrible, terrible. Well, the reason why I want to talk about that, you'll see in a few moments. But um, today we're going to be looking at one verse. One verse. We're getting short of everything around here. One verse. And uh, it's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And here we're taking some instruction from, from Paul, who is taking the bigger pictures of, of Jesus' instruction, and he's making them practical for us. And in many respects, we're taking the mustard seeds that have been planted by Jesus in the bigger picture of his story to us, and Paul is now applying them in very practical ways. So let's have a look at the verse that we're discussing this morning, looking at this morning. It's from 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It says here, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those that are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Well, there are four groups of people here that we're going to address this morning. And there's a Mother's Day theme, Mother's Day pitch to this, just, just how it works out. I always like it, how it works out like that. But um, what we're going to find is that uh, this application that Paul is bringing to the Thessalonian church actually derives from a bigger picture of uh, a vision that Jesus had for what society should be and the values that they would hold. And so I'm just going to touch on that again, just to remind us of this, this big ethereal picture that Jesus paints, that high-level picture that comes to us from the Sermon of the Mount. Uh, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we, we want to allow this word to sort of wash over us, and it's, it's at a very high level. But what Paul is often doing in his letters to the churches, and this letters to the Thessalonian church, is that he's wanting the words and the teachings of Jesus to fuse into the community life. Okay, so he's saying, look, this is the big picture. You know, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are you when you're persecuted. What does that mean in, in everyday terms? How does this melt down and apply to my life? It's the old so what factor. The so what. We read scripture and we go, so what? What does this do for us? And so we find here that Paul is saying to his, to his, uh, his listeners and his readers that this theory actually has application. And the application, firstly, is to those who are amongst them who were idle and disruptive. Idle and disruptive. Well, one usually follows the other. Isn't that right? If you're idle, you become disruptive. You know, bored people end up just breaking out of that boredom by doing things that uh, can get them into trouble. Idle hands. We all know the story about that, about that, what that leads to. But what we are told right at the beginning of the scriptures in Genesis is that work is a gift. Work is a gift. Now, sometimes when you go to work, you think, oh, this is not much of a gift. But the old story is that um, uh, if a man or a woman finds a work, a job that they enjoy, they never work another day in their lives. Is that fair to say? And so the key in life, I think, one of the, the blessings of life is to find the right place to be to actually outwork what God has already gifted you to be and do. And uh, if you're feeling that that's not a fair comment, then just ask somebody who's unemployed. Because there's nothing more demoralizing, nothing more depressing and demeaning than being underemployed or underemployed. Where people feel that, you know, there's more in them that they could or should be bringing. And yet they find themselves struggling at the tail end of the whole workforce. Now, not, not to say that... Um, you know, we have to earn our right to be able to be uh, promoted or you know, given more responsibility. I can remember when I first left school and I was working at a bank and one of my jobs was to change the towels in the bathrooms and to make the manager a cup of tea in the morning. You know, Now, every person who was the last on, as it were, had to make the manager a cup of tea. So that was his way of getting to know us. And it's actually worked quite well. So there's always a strategy in all of that. But we learn that work is a gift. It creates in us our identity. It gives us purpose. gives us significance. It obviously gives us income. But work is not a curse. If we go back to the book of Genesis, we find that before sin entered the world, before the curse of working to the sweat of your brow came to be, God said, says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
Okay? And that's why he had to create women to get him organized. You know? So he had this job and he needed women to get him organized. You know, I've noticed that my wife's arm has got longer and longer over the years because uh, she's got a list as long as your arm and the arm just keeps getting longer. But it's kind of nice, really, because she's actually saying to me a compliment. She says, I find that you're useful for something, you know? <laughs> and uh, so the list on the fridge actually reminds me that uh, I have some reason to exist. And, and so that's a good thing. Uh, work is important. And it, as I said a moment ago, it gives us identity and it gives us purpose, gives us significance. And whilst we will always, when we're growing up, have to do the dumb jobs, you know, learning to do the dumb jobs with a smile on your face, learning to do them well is always a big step in the right direction, isn't it? There's a little song we used to sing at school, and I don't know the rest of the song, but it went like this. He polished that bell so carefully that now he's the ruler of the king's navy. You remember that? You never saw it? We used to tune into the radio, public radio, in our classroom, and we had the lessons in front of us. Does that mean anything to you guys? <laughs> Some of you are going, how old is this fella? <laughs> you know, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we all wore sacks, and we used to go to school and towed by a horse. Yeah, we polished that bell so carefully that now he's the ruler of the king's navy. What he's saying is that when he started off, he was really intentional about doing a good job, and through that, he gets to become the, the ruler of the king's navy. Okay, so it's all, it's all about starting off and having a great attitude. All right, before all the young people leave, we'll just move on, because all their parents are behind them going, glad you came to church and it's Mother's Day and I can say what I want to you today. All right, so the second thing, this might apply to these young people now, that Paul was saying is encourage the disheartened. Encourage the disheartened. The Christian community has always taken the opportunity to encourage those who are disheartened. You know what Jesus said? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah? How are they blessed? Well, they're blessed when somebody gets alongside them. They're blessed when they realize that they're not alone in feeling sad or feeling depressed. And depressed, depression is a horrible thing. You know, we should never, ever judge anybody about this, this whole issue of depression because it's, it's something that just sends people into a downward spiral and there's no sense in which they can grab onto anything. We just have to be so careful about judging people when they're going through this. It's a really, really tough, tough time. But um, encouraging the disheartened, well, I'm going to introduce you to a couple of great mums. One's literally a mum, one wasn't, but people, women throughout history who have been an inspiration to me. And the first woman that I want to introduce you to, to is a lady called Elizabeth Fry. Now, Elizabeth Fry, is, this is in the UK, this is at the turn of the 19th century. Um, she had 11 kids of her own, and because she had nothing else to do, she got involved with, with uh, women who were in prison, okay? Because uh, well, 11 kids, man, you would think she would have been done completely. Uh, however, she was from a Quaker background, and Quakers have this real ideal target or targeting ideal of uh, meeting the needs of the poor and getting involved in social economic reform. And so she went into Newgate Prison in London and she visited women there. And the words that she said, and I'll just make sure I get these right, she said that they were pits of indecency, 
and brutality. Pits of indecency and brutality. The women were starving, they were sick, they were demoralised, they were unclothed largely, uh, and they even had their children with them because no one could look after the children in many cases, and so the children were in prison with them. And so she rallied a group of people, petitioned Parliament, and started to create what we would know as a prison reformation. And that brought about more humanitarian care of people who are in prison. But she was a, a real saint, and she would advocate for people who were in jail because uh, of s silly crimes, or in some cases they're in jail waiting for years before their court case was even heard. In some cases where women were condemned, literally, to death, she would be the one who would walk them to the gallows to give them comfort in their last moments. She's a real saint. But she began this work of prison ministry and work that we now see happening around the world continues. She said to the parliamentarians that you should build a prison that you'd be okay taking yourself and your family to. She's like, okay, that's a good way of thinking about it. But she brought about prison change. And now we have, uh, within the Christian community now, a huge commitment to prison fellowship. A prison fellowship started under the leadership of Chuck Colson, who was himself thrown in jail because he had been one of the conspirators with uh, President Nixon through the Watergate affair that happened in the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, he was put in jail. And what he found in there is that it was an isolated and desolate place where there was no moral strengthening. And so he said, this is a great place for the church to be, as if we hadn't already known it, but we'd forgotten it somehow. And so prison fellowship start, started throughout the world. And it's an amazing organisation to those who are disheartened. And for us as Christians, even now, we have a high emphasis upon counselling, supporting, uh, looking out for people's spiritual and emotional well-being. And it comes back to things that we do simply, like uh, small groups, like meeting here, sharing coffee afterwards, praying for one another, hearing each other's stories. They reckon that the biggest killer in the Western world is loneliness. Loneliness. Wow. Well, we all know what it's like to be lonely in a crowd, don't we? Yeah, some of you might be feeling that today. So we talk about meeting the needs of the disheartened. Another chap who's really encouraged me over the years uh, is a guy by the name of George Mueller. We talk about help the weak. You know, somebody buy that man a razor blade. But that was the fashion of the day. Great, great little beard, eh? George uh, was born in Prussia, which is sort of the German-Austrian border. And he went off to Bible school. He went off to theological college to become a minister. And when he was at Bible college, he became a Christian which um, might sound a bit unusual, but that happened in the day. It wasn't the first time or the last time that somebody became a Christian while at Bible college. You see, in the day, a, to be a minister was as much about a, uh, an appointment that the family was proud of than it was about a calling. So if you had three sons, one would ideally be a lawyer, another a doctor, and another a minister. You've got everything covered then, you see? Well, George became a Christian, and he was called to a church in Bristol in England. And whilst he was there, he discovered all of these urchins, all of these little, little kids running around the streets. And his heart was broken for them. But the unique thing about George is not that he had 
over his lifetime, 10,000 orphans come through his institutions, but that he was a man of prayer and a man of faith. And his stories are absolutely astounding. If you ever get a chance to read any of his biographies, uh, do so, and you'll be really, really encouraged. He chose that he would never, ever ask any institution for money. Sure, he would tell a story. He would share what it is that um, he, was, he was doing with the kids, but he would never, ever ask. And money or resources used to come. One particular time, story tells us that there were 300 orphans waiting to have breakfast before they went off to school one morning. And they were there, and George said, um, we're going to give God thanks for the food. There was no food to be had. They gave God, God thanks for the food, and then there was a knock on the door, and it was a baker, the local baker, and he was red-faced and sweaty, and he said, Mr. Mueller, Mr. Mueller, um, I don't know what's going on, he said, but God woke me up at two o'clock this morning, and I've had to cook three extra uh, ovens full of bread, and uh, God told me to bring it here. Do you need it? And so, perfect, eh? And just as they got the bread in, the milk cart was going past the orphanage, and the axle of the wheel broke. And the milkman came in and said, by the time I get this axle fixed, the milk will be ruined, so you better have it. Perfect, milk and bread. So these are the little stories that George spoke about, and they're a testimony to his ministry of life and life of prayer. When a child uh, graduated from his orphanage, they were usually more highly educated than any of the local kids. And in fact, the poor houses, the poor houses and the workhouses of that area around uh, Bristol, Wales, uh, used to complain that there weren't enough children for them to employ because the kids coming out of the orphanages were too well educated. Isn't that fantastic? Fantastic story. And so here we have a, a story of someone who's taken quite literally the words of Jesus, that blessed are the poor, yeah? And he has applied what, what Paul was saying to the Thessalonians, that we should help the weak, and we, we do that today. We still have ministries, of course, of, of uh, meeting the needs of those who are struggling. You know, fantastic. We've got Kaimanga, our own food bank. Uh, we've got Place of Hope. We've got counselling centres here. Uh, we work closely with Good Neighbour, who do a fantastic job. Thanks, Campbell, Christine, and others who have supported you. Um, we, we, we're always seeing Christ, the Christian community uh, building its networks, building its credibility into the life of of society around us. And for me, that's a, a foundation block of the, the life and the commitment of the church. You know, whatever we do for the least of these, Jesus said, you do for me. But whatever you do for the least of these, I can guarantee you'll be doing it on your own. Because when you get down to working with the least of these, only people who have a heart of sacrifice and a heart of commitment can actually make that difference because ultimately it will drain the life out of you. And unless you're doing it with God's strength and through God's love, it'll be the ruin of you. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Furthermore, helping the weak. We've got another story here, one of encouragement that I know many of you have uh, come across over the years, and that's Jackie Pullinger. Jackie was a young woman who was inspired to head out into missions, and she didn't know where she was to go. And so she literally gets on a, a boat from the UK, from England, and she gets a round-the-world ticket, not knowing what God was going to do or say. And he told her to get off the boat at Hong Kong. And there she found, in the middle of Hong Kong, this slum called Kowloon City. So can you imagine this? You see the slum there, right? 
That's uh, normal residences all around it, but here 33,000 people lived. Okay? And um, it was a, a quote, a self-sustaining city of darkness. Now, I know some folk in our church have actually, in the last decade or so, been through to the city and worked with Jackie Pullinger with her ministry. And it was a ministry working with drug addicts because of the amount of uh, crime and, and the like within this walled city. None of the authorities actually wanted to have anything to do with it. So they literally left it alone. Children were being raised here. There were triads and gangs and drug industry, of course, was huge. And Jackie would go to the triad leaders and she'd say, give me the worst that you have. Give me the worst that you had. And these were drug dealers, and sorry, drug addicts. And Jackie said, give me the worst that you have, but once you give them to me, you can't have them back. And she would minister to them and she would literally have them receive Christ. These are desperate people. And she would invite the Holy Spirit to come upon them, she would ask them to speak in tongues, and a 90% success rate where the addiction was broken there and then in the moment. And uh, years and years of, <clears throat> of, uh, of work that they might have done to rid themselves of, drug was of drugs was miraculously overcome. And this is the, the sovereign nature of God working in a place that epitomizes darkness. No one, no one wanted to go there. The only times the authorities ever went in there, the only times the police ever went to the city, is if they literally went in a huge gang of their own to protect themselves. But here this English woman uh, established a ministry that radically transformed the inner part, the inner, inner part of Hong Kong. Now, 25 years or so ago, the government literally paid people to leave this area and, um, and they pulled it down. And now it's no longer there. But uh, helping the weak, helping the weak is a huge part of what the gospel is all about. To go and minister to the least of these has been a place that has been reserved and preserved for the body of Christ to work. When Youth With A Mission was first getting started, uh, they sent a discipleship training school on a mission to Hong Kong. And in the middle of Hong Kong, same place again, uh, there was a uh, a camp for refugees, people who were basically of, uh, of no, this word, no fixed abode, there's a, uh, there's a technical Latin term for that, they have got no, no home, no place, and uh, they were living in these cages, and they're in this, in this house, it's a cage underneath, and there was literally a foot of human excrement underneath this caged area that they were living. And so the YWAMers went in there and cleaned it out. It took them a week, but they cleaned it out. And they were so, the locals were so amazed that these young people would do this, that it gave them a leg in into that community and they established the YWAM base there. Why? Because they went in and served to do the things that no one else would ever want to do, to serve the least of these. It makes sense? Help the weak. So let me move on to the final one, which is the easiest one of all. It says, uh, be patient with everyone. Okay? Man, it's tough, isn't it? I find it tough to even be patient with myself. You know? Actually, I'm not very patient with myself. But um, <clears throat> be patient with yourself because, so, sorry, with others, because instant society or the idea that you can help someone within a week, they're all sorted, is just a myth. 
And it's again, it's that sense in which God is and will always be patient with us. So we need to apply that same level of love and commitment to others. Okay? So, so if you have received, so you give. Does that make sense? God's doing this lifetime work in me. And sometimes, um, according to my wife, I'm going backwards. But we're actually on this journey of sanctification. And so we need people to draw alongside us who can actually do this journey with us. And that takes patience, doesn't it? One of the things that I've always been impressed with is people who take a view that the work or the call they have upon their lives is going to take a lifetime. Why take on a challenge that's going to be sorted in a year or two? Why not take on a challenge that might take a lifetime? And maybe it's going to take more than a lifetime. Maybe it's something you're going to pass on to your children and your children's children. A sense of calling that we can change society by virtue of God working in us and through us intergenerationally. So the whole idea of being patient with everyone is saying, not only this is what we do, but this is how we do it. And the how we do it is allowing, allowing time to be your friend. We always talk about time as the enemy. Time is not the enemy. Time is your friend. Time is a gift. Time gives you the ability to do things well, to think strategically, to plan forward, to change, to bring the resources in, bring the people in, and allow things to change with that consistent pressure of the ability that we have in God just to see the bigger picture and push against the change that's needed. One of the people that encapsulate this is William Wilberforce. Now, he's a hero to anybody, really, but he, he was driven by this strong Christian commitment that he himself was called to end slavery, to bring slavery to an end in Britain. And so 200 years ago, he began this campaign to enter into Parliament as a young man to be able to change the laws that made slavery illegal. And so by doing this, uh, he took on a lifetime commitment to change society around him. And of course, he was met with resistance because uh, he was told that he would bring down the whole of the British Empire, bring down their economy, because he was getting rid of all the labor units and the sugar fields and the cotton fields and other places around the world where the British held these, 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 these folks in bondage, in slavery. Okay? And so um, he has this interaction in the movie Amazing Grace with John Newton, the guy who wrote the song Amazing Grace. Now, I'm going to show you the trailer to the movie Amazing Grace right now. I'm going to show it to you. And uh, I have to admit, every time I see it, it brings a lump to my throat. I don't know why it is, but um, we'll maybe talk about it a bit more after, after you see this. So, thanks. What do you want with an old preacher? I'm here to seek your advice. Are you contemplating a life of solitude? People like you too much. Besides, Wilbur, you have work to do. But now I see. 
No one of our age has ever taken power. Which is why we're too young to realize that certain things are impossible. You're what? the best fighter in the house and the best speaker. Where does this little terrier spring from? I believe he's a Yorkshire terrier, my lord. One man will risk everything. Payment in kind. There's nothing you have I'd want, Your Grace. He'd fetch at least 25 guineas. The game is over. To speak for those who could not, they do this to let you know that you no longer belong to God, but to a man. To make the blind see. We have no evidence that the Africans themselves have any objection to the trade. And to lead a movement that would change the world. Do it. Throw their dirty, filthy ships out of the water. The slave trade has 300 MPs in its pocket. It would be just you against them. If we were to outlaw the trade tomorrow, this would bring financial disaster. His enemy is my enemy. Will before the rebel. No matter how loud you shout, you will not drown out the voice of the people! People! That matters more. In Africa, I was a prince. In many ways, not unlike you. I'm going to try again. As your prime minister, I urge caution. And as my friend? Not to hell with caution. Remember, God made men equal. was blind, but now I see. Did I write that? Yes, you did. Now at last it's true. Amazing Grace. Here we are on February the 23rd, 2006. <laughs> William Wilberforce died three days after the law changed. <coughs> Lifetime. But not only that, they set up a group called the Clapham Sect. Don't think of sect in a, a negative term. But the Clapham Sect was the next generation, their children. And, um, and they essentially had a, a vision, collective vision, that they were going to affect uh, British law. And so they got involved with uh, all of the, um, the home office um, work, which essentially was about what Britain was doing amongst its empire nations. And New Zealand, the way we were founded, was a direct result of the way that William Wilberforce's children and the friends' children uh, made changes. You see, the British had a great plan. It was uh, a military plan. Go to a nation, intimidate it into submission. And if they didn't like the submission idea, they were dealt with accordingly. And so bloodshed was always a big part of the, the British mission to the world. And they came to New Zealand and the, the Home Office said, we have to do something different. We don't think we've got a very good Christian attitude to the way that we've been bringing colonial rule to the nations. And so in 1840, at the suggestion of the Home Office and these Christians who were in there, that we, we signed a treaty with the Tangata Whenua. And that shaped our nation in a way so different. When we had land wars, yes, but nothing, nothing like it would have been if uh, that treaty hadn't have been signed and if that hadn't have been uh, put together by the likes of William Wilberforce's families and children who held not only a one-lifetime vision but a vision for a transformed world, something they passed on to their own children. And so we come back to this verse. 
And we see it for what it is when Paul wrote it. It was a, a mustard seed. A mustard seed. When Paul says, let's take the words of Jesus, that great sermon on the mount, and let's melt them down and apply them to our everyday lives. And so therefore he says, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Let's stand for prayer. God, we are always impressed with how it has been throughout centuries you've taken these mustard seeds of words and you've put them in people's hearts and you've grown them to transform nations. And Lord, today on Mother's Day, we know that these similar visions are given to each each mum in this place who has been able to raise kids, the privilege of being able to do that. And they've held on to vision, which as I have no doubt, has incorporated these words of uh, helping children not be idle and disruptive, of helping them when they're disheartened or weak, and being patient with every one of them. So God, we, we thank you that these things are upon your heart. And as we look at them, we're encouraged, uh, not only by history, but by the work around us, as we too see people taking up the mantle of a vision that's bigger than themselves, lasting a lifetime into future generations. So God, we, we just ask that as a church, we can continue to uh, build and strengthen the disheartened and the weak and to be patient with everyone, ensuring that, uh, that the values of Jesus are outworked and people get to taste and see that the kingdom of God is good. So Lord, hold us to account for these things. Yes, and we ask that you be patient with us as we learn all the things that you want us to get involved with and be. We commit our time to you and we particularly pray for mums today. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless.